Peering through the pressed wood slats of a cheap closet door, I could see his well-toned ass pumping in and out of view in perfect syncopation with her moans. Two slats lower, and I could see her naked breasts, which never seemed to move, no matter how much she screamed and flailed about. They were huge and perfectly round, cheap implants that looked less like breasts and more like two grapefruits trying to break free from her skin. Slam! She jumped. The breasts did not. What was that? A door? His wife was home. The girl in bed scrambled from underneath him, and he pulled out, but the excitement put him over the top, and he finished all over the grapefruits. She sprang from the bed, no time to clean up, and ran straight into the closet, where I was hiding. <laughs> there was barely enough room for me in there, and it was a big surprise for both of us when she just ran in, just as the wife entered the bedroom. I put my finger to my lips, and she managed to stifle her scream. Having to cover up his indiscretion, the husband threw his wife down on the bed and began to pump away at her now. I didn't watch that time. I was now pressed against the wall and focused on the glazed grapefruits an inch away from me. <laughs> and cut. Okay, we're turning around. Great job, people. Let's get the lighting team in here and reset. My closet mate smiled at me and turned to leave. You scared me there, she whispered, panting from the athletic sex and fright I'd given her. Sorry, I said. She didn't know I'd been hiding in the closet. I wasn't supposed to be in there. I had been on the set, tweaking a light, when the director screamed at me to get off because the actor was, well, ready to get off. I raced through what I thought was a door to the back deck, only to get trapped in the closet. Now halfway out the door, she stopped and turned back. After you're done with the lights, come meet us in the downstairs bathroom by the suit of armor. We'll smoke up again, Bear. On the first day of the shoot, one of the stars had tagged me Bear, and now a week into my new life on a porn lighting crew, they all liked me, and I was the only crew member invited to their all-nude joint smoking session each morning. I was in. And until you've smoked a joint with a half dozen naked porn stars in the Hollywood Hills, you really haven't smoked a joint. <laughs> I was 26, and I'd been in L.A. for about six months after walking away from a career as a music and entertainment reporter at a mid-sized Pennsylvania newspaper, determined to drink deep from life and not spend the rest of my days writing reviews of Sticks and Michael Bolton concerts. <laughs> Work was scarce for a wide-eyed writer in a land lubricated with the guts of recently arrived writers and actors. So when the producer of a friend's student film told me that he had just signed a three-picture deal producing porn, I was in no position to turn down the offer of work. Meanwhile, back in Pennsylvania Dutch country, my mom was working her way down a produce aisle, looking for just the right apples for some upcoming dumplings. Annie? The voice was excited, happy to see her, and my mom looked over to see its source, Carolyn Barnhart. My mom blinks a smile onto her face. It's been 10 years, a span that has relegated their relationship to a nostalgia act a greatest hits album. They volley back and forth, never acknowledging the invisible scoreboard that hangs above this brutal sport. Bruce quit the practice, ding. Scott's in law school, ding. Did you hear about Deirdre, ding. Fresh from a concerned check-in call with me, my mom was ready. What am I supposed to tell people when they ask about you? I did not give a rat's ass what the Carolyn Barnharts of the world thought of me. She was the very embodiment of what I was fleeing in the first place. But my mom did care, so I had armed her with vagaries. He's learning about the movie business, working in set lighting on independent films. Ding? <laughs> it was better than, well, Greg is in a medieval-themed bathroom surrounded by porn stars smoking pot and learning the finer points of bondage in S&M. <laughs> Clearly, I was not pulling my weight for my mom's blood sport, but that's exactly where my grand adventure had landed me. A week before the shoot, the producer called to hire me and my van to drive all over L.A. County to pick up some props. My male friends back home were excited and jealous. 
I was just sad that the only work I could find was driving to Manhattan Beach to pick up a bondage harness and some teddies. Then on to the pleasure chest to grab an exciting array of goodies, including a two-foot-long latex corkscrew with a sword-like handle known as the anal twister, the use of which required both hands and a Costco-sized bottle of lubricant. <laughs> then it was off to the director Lasse's house. Lasse Braun was a self-proclaimed porn legend, and this was to be his comeback after a decades-long self-imposed exile, his protest against the decline in artistic standards of pornography. <laughs> I pulled up to a small ranch house on one of a thousand sun-baked streets in Van Nuys. This was not the home of a legend, porn or otherwise. As I neared the front door, it was opened by an equally sun-baked bottle blonde Russian woman whose raspy Phyllis Diller voice crawled out past the half-smoked cigarette stuck to her lipstick. Come in, she said. Above the couch was a giant crimson velvet painting of this same woman, much younger, nude and spreading her legs in what looked like the first step of a gynecological exam. Everything in the place was crimson and black, and if it could be covered with velvet, it was, <laughs> including Lasse. This small elderly man slid into the room wearing pajamas, a robe, and slippers, all velvet, all low-rent Hugh Hefner. Upon seeing him, I realized that the matching painting on the opposite wall was of a much younger him, mercifully dressed in a tuxedo, wearing a top hat, and holding a whip like a circus lion tamer. He looks through the box of things I'd brought him, nodding and occasionally mumbling something to himself. Yes, yes, this will do. He then delivered a monologue, telling me what a sexual pioneer he was, using the word genius multiple times, and explaining that he had discovered new ways to give women orgasms. Plus, no one, he claimed, made adult movies with plots before he did. He had created the genre out of thin air. The claims spewed out of him so quickly that it was impossible to evaluate the authenticity of any one of them, so I just nodded politely. I assume you want my autograph, he said. I had my doubts about his regal standing, but that didn't matter, as he didn't wait for an answer. He just signed the back of an ATM receipt, sighed as if it were an inconvenience, and waved me out of his house with a regal hand flip. Phyllis Diller jumped to her feet, wobbled a bit, and led me out the door, a trail of ash behind her. Pornographic pioneer and orgasm-inventing lion tamer? That would not make my mom's greatest hits album. <laughs> After that, I drove a porn star named Naomi to an unmarked medical clinic in Van Nuys so she could get a state-mandated HIV test. She went inside to get pricked, and I stood smoking in the parking lot, staring up through the khaki haze of a hot valley sky. So what if Scott Barnhart was knocking them dead at Dartmouth? This is what I wanted, to see this, not the impossibly green lawns of my permanent press hometown. More nervous than she'd admit, Naomi came outside to smoke with me while she awaited her results. A recent Congolese immigrant, Naomi had six-inch heels on, a leopard print mini dress, and a thick sheen of sparkly makeup that covered all of her dark, almost purple skin. Both of us had dreams, out here on the front lines of the dream business, and both of us stood still, smoking and waiting. And what, she had, what had she left behind? Is this where she thought she would be? We started chatting, and in less than a minute, she said it, the line they all said. I'm only doing this till I make it as a mainstream actress. I was just about to pity her when it hit me. Which one of us aren't doing that? Trying to get by, trying to impress someone, to settle some score with ourselves, and still find the strength to whisper our dreams to strangers. Maybe we all tell ourselves that this was a stopover on the way to something else. Saying it aloud was a mantra, a way of closing our eyes, of pushing through, of reminding ourselves just how much we'd mortgaged for our dreams. And after I dropped Naomi on set, I had one more stop, a grocery store on Franklin, where I had a list to buy 12 enemas, 12 douches, and six packs of Marlboro Ultralights. <laughs> now I stood in my own grocery store, imagining an embarrassing price check before my thoughts drifted back to my mom standing in her grocery store 3,000 miles away and waiting for me to write the next English patient. 
She could have Carolyn Barnhart. I would take Lasse and Naomi. At that point in my life, I was pulled on some alchemical level to walk away from safety, from predictability. And I've done that at every single turn ever since. And my mom never felt that pull, but she never tried to steer me away from it, even if it meant she couldn't brag about me to women she didn't even like.